Our text today is Titus chapter 3, verses 1 through 8, and we'll finish the message I started a few weeks ago on Christian living in a hostile world. Some of you are old enough to remember times when Christianity, at least Christian morality, seemed to be on top. It had great cultural and social, even political power. But in recent times, it's not been the case, has it? We see that our culture is on something like a, a roller coaster, just accelerating, accelerating down away from what God has called us to be, called us to live. We see so many just rejecting outright the demands of God and not just that, but demanding that all others approve what they are doing in their desire to leave God and his word behind. And so we see in our own day, I could probably go spend this entire message going through social media or various news websites and finding examples of the world's hostility towards Christianity. And of course, this has been a problem in countries around the world, in many cases, like China and North Korea, other places like this for, for many, many years. And this is not new to them at all, but it's maybe more new to us in the U.S. But I won't go through a lot of details right now. You know them yourself. You've probably seen them in your own lives. You've seen them on on the on the news. You've seen them in the papers. You know that there is more and more hostility towards us as Christians. So what is our response to be? There are a number of temptations. One I mentioned last time is a temptation to fear, to be afraid that we're going to lose our job or to lose our freedoms, even our lives. Another temptation is to flight, that is just to, to, to go away. Don't let them find you, maybe get off the grid. There have been efforts in recent years for Christians, say, to move en masse to one state or another country and set up their own sort of Christian society, much like the pilgrims did 400 years ago. Another temptation is to fight, and this is not in the Ephesians 6 sense of putting on the full armor of God and, and fighting the, the good fight of faith, but this is a temptation I've seen too often to fight the Lord's battle with the enemy's weapons, with anger, bitterness, contempt, cursing, hatred, striking back and returning evil for evil. And it's sad to see so many Christians' response to hostility is to respond with hostility of their own. You might have heard the news recently when Speaker Nancy Pelosi's husband was assaulted with a hammer. Uh, recently, 82-year, I think, year old man, and while we resist much of what Nancy Pelosi and those like her would do in our culture and in our, our politics, anytime an 82-year-old man is assaulted with a hammer, it's a serious thing, and it's not a, a matter to be joked about. And I saw many people who call themselves Christians in their biographies make jokes about this man who was assaulted and nearly killed by a, a crazy person, an evil person. And it, it's grievous to see Christians piling on in those situations to, to laugh at wickedness like that. But the truth is, if I look inside my heart, I've had similar reactions. I can rejoice in unrighteousness. I can rejoice when someone I see as my enemy is brought low and, and to enjoy their suffering. And so it's not something that is just outside me, but it's inside me as well. I can see these sentiments in myself to, to see those suffer who have perhaps hurt me in some way. But that is not how Christians 
are to act, of course. That's not how our Lord acted, and it's not how Paul would teach us to act. Our passage in Titus 3 helps us as we confront a hostile world. How do we act when those of the world will will act in hostility towards us? Let me read that text today. Titus 3, verses 1 to 8. Paul says, Remind them to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good deed, to malign no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing every consideration for all men. For we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. But when the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This is a trustworthy statement, and concerning these things, I want you to speak confidently so that those who have believed God will be careful to engage in good deeds. These things are good and profitable for men. Now, we don't have time to review everything. I talked at some length last time about Titus the man. We don't know a lot about him, but very interesting character, but a man that Paul entrusted with a very important duty. And in the book of Titus, Paul is instructing Titus, this young man, how to ground and grow churches. Look at Titus 1.5. Paul says, For this reason I left you in Crete, that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. So as, as Paul has already gone through Crete, and Titus is here to help establish the churches by uh, calling elders to, to help grow these churches. Now these... Cretans, as it says in verse 10 of chapter 1, there are many rebellious men, empty talkers and deceivers, especially of those of the circumcision, who must be silenced because they are upsetting whole families, teaching things they should not for the sake of sordid gain. One of themselves, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. For this reason, reprove them severely so that they will be sound in the faith. So we have those inside the church and outside the church who are liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons, who are teaching upsetting things. Verse 16 says, They profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny him, being detestable and disobedient and worthless for any good deed. So we have this unrighteousness surrounding these churches. And from this mass of gluttons and evil beasts, liars. Paul is to select in these churches, find those who are not this way, who can appropriately and properly lead the church. That's Titus's job, and, and Paul trusts him to do that. Titus himself would have to stand firm in the truth and find men who would do the same. So how is Titus to do this job? He's in a hostile environment, this, this large island of Crete, with, with many people, with many hostilities, and yet he is to help set up these churches, to establish these churches, and to help them grow in their faith. These people have been only recently rescued from this pagan culture, this culture that's hostile to the gospel. And how can Titus call these, these churches to be what Christ wants them to be? 
Well, in order to do this, he needs to remind them of a few things. We talked about this last time in verses 1 and 2. And that is to remind them how to behave, how they are to behave. And first, they are to relate to those in authority in a special way. Paul here says, remind them to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient. We are to be subject to those who are in authority over us. And I quoted First Peter 2, 13 and 14 last time. We do this for God's honor. Peter says, submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king as the one in authority or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who are who do right. I also spent some time in Romans 13 reading that to you. And Paul's message there is that if we are not subject to the authorities over us, we are not being subject to whom? God. It's God who placed authorities over us. Even those unrighteous ones like the Romans back in Paul's day or like our own today, there is a subjection we are to have to those authorities over us. doesn't mean we always like to. It doesn't sit well with Americans. We want to be free. We were born in rebellion. We want to be obedient when we want to be obedient and know more than that. But as we talked about last time, we need to submit and be obedient freely from the heart, not because it's demanded of us. If we had children who were obedient to us only because they were forced to be or they were afraid of repercussions, would that be pleasing to us as parents? We want our our children to obey us out of love for us and out of uh, a joy. And we also need to submit to those in authority over us freely from the heart not just because we're afraid of the repercussions or or the the punishment we might get if we don't obey. Now, there are exceptions. When the government demands of us what is sinful, we must obey God rather than men, of course. We also know that there are times in our society when there are those authorities who will break the laws of our own authorities. The, The supreme law of our land is the Constitution, And if there are those in authority over us who break the Constitution, we have every right as Americans to uh, resist those actions because there's a higher law. Just as there's God's higher law over us, there's also a higher law of the Constitution over us. And so there might be cases where, let's say, an officer wanted to come into our house and and search our home for something, and they don't have a, a proper warrant. We could refuse to let them into our home because we have that right as American. Now, if they insisted, we have to decide what to do about that. But... There are laws that govern even the authorities over us. But as we look at what Paul is calling us to do here, we can summarize in this way. As Americans, we can disobey orders that go against American law because those orders are negated by the higher law. That even more importantly, as Christians, we can and must disobey orders that go against God's law because those laws are negated by the highest law. The law of the United States or Washington State or whatever city you're from cannot tell us to do something that is against God's law. God's law is the highest law. And that might mean we get fined, we might go to jail, we might even be killed, as many Christians have throughout history. And even in other parts of the world, our brothers and sisters right now are in jail and perhaps even dying for the sake of Christ right now. But otherwise... We need to submit ourselves to the authorities over us and be obedient, even when it's difficult, obnoxious, or harmful to our pocketbook. Well, let's move on now to 
uh, how we relate to everyone, besides the, those in authority over us, reviewing how to relate to everyone. Paul here says, at the end of verse 1, be ready for every good deed, to malign no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing every consideration for all men. We are to be ready for every good deed. So we are living a holy life, and we're eagerly looking for ways to show God's goodness with others. You can't uh, perform good deeds if you're not good yourself, if you're not living a holy life. But if you're living a holy life, you're looking for ways to bless others with God's goodness. That is what Paul is calling us to do here. We are to be prepared, be ready, like a soldier might prepare himself for battle. So looking ahead, how can we be uh, deliberate about being good to other people? How can we think ahead about how we are going to show God's kindness to people? So we can be eager for those things and persistent and encouraged as we seek to, to bless others with our good deeds. Paul also says, to malign no one, verse 2. Malign is, as I mentioned last time, the word from which we get blasphemy. It means to revile or slander or insult or speak evil of. It's using our tongue to, to bring somebody down. We're not to do that, to malign no one, but rather to be peaceable, gentle, showing every consideration for all men. So we're not starting fights, we're not brawling, but we're peaceable, we're gentle, we're showing humility, meekness, kindness. Even those who wrong and oppose us, are we supposed to strike back at those who strike at us? Are we allowed to be unkind to those who are unkind to us? Listen to what Paul says in 2 Timothy 2, verses 24 to 26. The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth, and that they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. So we are to be like our Lord, who was, who was insulted, who was maligned, and yet he did not malign or insult in return. So when the world is at war with the church, Paul says here, be peaceable. When the world is harsh and brutal like evil beasts of Crete, be gentle. And when the world is proud and rude, be humble and courteous. Well, now we're going to move on to some new material from verse 3 down to the end of verse 8. Paul has is going to remind Titus not just to remind the people how to behave or uh, how to behave but remind them how they used to behave. Verses 1 and 2 say how they are to behave, but verse 3 says how they used to behave. Verse 3 says for we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. As the world comes against these Christians in Crete, the temptation might be to fight back, to give as good as they get. But instead of doing that, they need to remember something else, that they were sinners too. These Christians from Crete were probably not Christians for very long, The gospel had only come to them a few years before, so their previous lives weren't really that far behind them. And notice here that Paul here switches to we. 
verse 1, he says, remind them. But now it's, for we were once foolish ourselves. And Paul is not setting himself above these Cretans looking down, but he's looking across to them and saying, this was me too. Paul knew what it was like, didn't he? When he was going against the church, he knew what it was like to, to have hatred, to, to have murder in his heart. He wasn't above those, those strong, wicked emotions. And so he can say, we were once this way ourselves. We were foolish. We were without understanding. We, we didn't know God's wisdom. We were disobedient. We rebelled against heavenly and earthly authorities. We went against our conscience. And we were deceived. Besides this foolish mind and the disobedient heart, we were deceived. We have this inward bent towards sin in our minds, disobedience in our actions, but we also had external forces steering us that direction also. Something from the outside is deceiving us. Revelation 12.9 mentions the serpent of old who is called the devil and Satan who deceives the whole world. So inside and outside we have the sin and this deception encompassing us. It says further, we were enslaved to various lusts and pleasures. So we lusted for what we wanted and we took sinful pleasure in what we got. We had sinful desires and when we enjoyed those sinful desires, when they were fulfilled, we we had pleasure in them and that was a sinful thing for us to enjoy. And we may have thought we were free, but we were actually enslaved to the wicked desires in our hearts and the fulfillment of those desires. You all know Romans 6, and we could read this in great detail, but Paul here says, he's speaking about this enslavement to sin. Romans 6.19, Paul says, you were you presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, resulting in further lawlessness. Have you ever had somebody who walks away from the faith, walks away from God's law, and they say, I'm finally free to do what I want. They see setting aside God's law, setting aside God's will as a kind of freedom. But is it freedom? It's not. It's enslavement to your lusts and your pleasures. There's no such thing as true freedom, is there? You're either enslaved to God or you're enslaved to sin. There's no middle ground. There's no such thing as true freedom in that sense of complete independence from anything else. You submit yourself to God or you submit yourself to the, the lusts that are in your own heart. And Paul continues in Titus 3, after saying we were enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, said we spent our life in malice and envy. This malice is a hostility. It's wanting evil to happen to someone. It's wanting Nancy Pelosi's husband to get hit with a hammer because it's something that he deserves because he's he's a liberal, he's a Democrat. Or you could think of other cases where somebody just has it coming to them and, and you're so glad to see it happen because you have this malice in your heart. Or there's envy that's wanting what someone else has. You you see somebody else with something that you want and you desire it. You're enslaved to the lust and pleasure. And when somebody else is enjoying something that you want, you hate them for it. You have malice toward them. That's what life was like for these Cretans before they came to Christ. It also says further that they were hateful and hating one another. And this word hateful could probably be translated better. It doesn't mean that they were full of hate in this case. But it means that they were despicable. They were loathsome. They were hateable. 
you look at them and they were just something that you would not, you would scrape off the bottom of your shoe. Uh, ESV says that they were hated by others. So these are people who were hated by other people. And in turn, it says they were hating one another. So if somebody hates you, you respond with hate in return. Somebody looks at me and says, boy, you're despicable. I hate you. And you say, well, I hate you right back. This sounds a lot like Twitter to me, doesn't it? If you are on Twitter, that's a good, good uh, encapsulation of what Twitter is. Hateful and hating one another. Maybe other social media platforms as well. Just spent time hating each other. So that's how Paul describes these Cretans and also himself. That's how you were. It's not very pleasant, is it? He's holding a mirror up to what they used to be. And you might think, if you're a Cretan reading this letter through Titus, thanks a lot, Paul. Thanks for reminding me of what I was. I've been trying to forget that past. I've been trying to walk forward in Christ. Why are you reminding me, Paul, of what I used to be like? That's a disgusting picture. I don't want to see that anymore. Paul mentions in Romans 6, I was just there, verse 21, Paul refers to those things of which you are now ashamed. These Christians were ashamed of what they were in verse 3. Paul is not being gratuitous and bringing this up. He has a reason for it. Remember, those who are hostile to you are no different from how you once were. Those people in Crete who are Liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons, that was you before. And when they are hostile against you, when they hate you, when they persecute you, when they imprison you or kill you, they're doing that because that's who they are. That's, that's who you were as well. So have some humility in yourself. Remind yourself of who you are without Christ. A few weeks ago, I did a lesson in Sunday school on Jesus' parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. Now, I think you probably know that from Luke 18. But the lead into that, Jesus told that parable for this reason. To some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. Now, is that something that's impossible for a Christian to do? It's not, is it? I confess, I trust in myself that I'm righteous and I view others with contempt. I see somebody uh, on, a, on a, a video, they're doing something disgusting and, and horrific, and I... It makes me angry to see them shaking their fist at God. It's easier for me to view them with contempt. Instead of saying, there but for the grace of God go I, you think, I would never do that. I could never think of doing that. Having the, the mindset that there are some sins that I am too good for. But that's not the case, is it? Without Christ, there's no sin that I am too good for. And so I can't view others with contempt when they are engaging in the very sin that I would if Christ were not in my heart. And this idea of viewing others with contempt is something that Christians can so easily get caught up in. And so I I implore you, don't let that happen to you. Don't see yourself as never being possibly doing the things that are in Titus chapter 3, verse 3. If we once were like the world, how can we respond with contempt or boasting? How can we hate those who hate us when we ourselves were hateful in the past? Now, some of you might say, like I was, I was brought up in a Christian home, or at least I was brought up in a moral home, and these verses don't sound very much like you or me. And that may be the case to some extent, but we can thank God, in that case, as a hymn goes, that you didn't spend years in vanity and pride. 
But even so, those of us who were born into a Christian home with Christian parents and came to know Christ at an early age and were, were providentially protected from a lot of this sinful life, we were born in sin. And even if you were spared many years of walking in darkness, you were still a sinner in need of a Savior. And that brings us now to the most important thing that Titus needed to do for these people to remind them of something. And that is to remind them how they were saved. He reminds them of what they were saved from, verse 3, but reminds them in verse 4 of how they were saved, verses 4 down to verse 7. But when the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Now that's a long, complex sentence, but it's a beautiful one. Starts out with this little word, but. Verse 4, But when the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared... Our condition has been changed from the sinners we were in verse 3. But it's not of our own doing. It's God who changes our condition. We didn't get out of verse 3 by ourselves. And this passage here is one of the great ones in teaching that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and not works. That's kind of fitting since we just remembered the the nailing of the 95 Theses uh, just last Monday. But just listen to these few verses here that are so important to us, and we should all know these as as believers. Romans 3.28, Paul says, We maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from works of the law. In Galatians 2.16, A man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus. Even we have believed in Christ Jesus, so that we may, may be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, since by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. And then Philippians 3, 9. Paul wanted to be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own, derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. So these verses I just read to you and the verses in Titus 3 tell us clearly we cannot in any way save ourselves by doing good things by the works of the law. And this passage in Titus 3 is rightly used a lot when trying to witness to people who trust their goodness to get them into heaven. If you are speaking to somebody about Christ and they say, I'm a good person, I get to heaven because I'm a good person, take them to Titus 3 and show them they can't do anything good to earn their way to heaven. But remember the context here. Paul is not trying in Titus 3 to convince people to be saved, but to remind Christians how they were saved. Paul's looking back at their salvation. And so Paul here is going to give, in these verses, the who, what, when, why, and how of our salvation. The who, what, when, why, and how. Who? Who is it who saves us? Well, it's clear Verse 4, God our Savior. And notice that it's God who is doing these things. You look at the, in verse 3, 
It's the we. We were the foolish, disobedient ones. Verses 4 to 7, it's God who does the work. God is the one who is doing these things. We are just the object. And even though faith is the instrument by which we lay hold of salvation, Paul doesn't mention it in verses uh, 4 to 7. And maybe it's because he's focusing on the sovereign, gracious work of God, lest there be any temptation for us to boast. This is God's work in us. We get from verse 3 to verse 4 because of God and his kindness to us. So that is the who, God our Savior. What are we gaining in our salvation? Well, we see this in verse 5. The center of the sentence is, verse 5, he saved us. God saved us. All the other stuff is is explaining what this salvation is. That we are saved from divine wrath. We're saved from something. We are saved to something. And I could remind you of John 3, 16, 17. It says that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send the son into the world to judge the world, but so that the world might be saved through him. So we are saved from divine wrath, this perishing that is mentioned in John 3.16. We were saved to eternal life. We are part now of God's family. Verse 7 says that we are made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. So we're saved from divine wrath to eternal life in Christ. And when did this salvation happen? Verse 4, when the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared. This is a reference to when the Son of God came to earth to be born, to live a sinless life, to preach, to heal, and do mighty miracles, to suffer and die on a cross and rise again. That's the when. The nexus of our salvation is when Christ came as a man and did all he needed to do, accomplish all God, the Father's purpose, and then suffered and died was raised again for us. Now, why? Why this salvation? What was God's motivation? We have here in this passage some beautiful words that describe God's salvation work. We see his kindness and his love, verse 4. We see mercy, verse 5, according to his mercy. And then verse 7 says that we are justified by his grace. And we could list Hundreds of verses about God's goodness and salvation. We could talk in depth about kindness, love, mercy, and grace. We won't do that now. But just listen to a couple of verses to remind us of God's goodness to us. Luke 6, 35 and 36. Jesus says, Love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great. And you will be sons of the Most High. For he himself is kind to ungrateful and evil men. Be merciful just as your father is merciful. So God is good to his enemies. He saves his enemies. Romans 5.8 says, God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Christ was sent to save sinners. God loved sinners. So he saves sinners. Ephesians 2, verses 4 to 7. But God, being rich in mercy, there's mercy again because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him 
and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Same terms, kindness, love, mercy, grace, all in this Ephesians 2 passage as well as in Titus 3. God's goodness, his kindness, his love, mercy, grace are all there in salvation. That was his motivation for doing it because he loved us so much. Now, how does he save us? How does God save us? Well, we see one way we're not saved. First of all, it says that we are not saved, verse 5, on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness. God doesn't save us because we're good, because we've done good, because we wish we were good, we want to be good. We cannot be saved on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness because there is no such thing without Christ. We can do no good thing to earn our salvation. But we are saved, it says here, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. Now this washing of regeneration is the cleansing that comes through the new birth. It's that birth mentioned in John 3, 5. Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. Or as I just read in Ephesians 2, 5, that we were dead in our transgressions, but God made us alive together with Christ. The picture of somebody who is dead and is brought to life. That's the washing of regeneration. We were dead, now we're alive. We were not born of the Spirit, now we are born of the Spirit. But it's not just a washing of regeneration, it's also a washing of renewing by the Holy Spirit. So this regeneration earlier happened just once. We are born again how many times? Once. We're not born again every day. We are born again. We are regenerated once. But the renewing happens day by day until we go to be with Christ. And this is the Spirit's sanctification. Renewing is sanctification. And he's producing the fruit of the Spirit in us. Now, Paul here mentions some details of this washing. Verse 6. This Holy Spirit whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. So, notice here that this salvation is a Trinitarian work. It's a Trinitarian kindness to us. God the Father pours the Spirit through the Son. The Son is, you might say, the channel of the Spirit. It, Christ is the, the mechanism through which we get this, the blessing of the Spirit of God, because he opens up that capability to us. The, the Spirit is, you might think, say, say blocked, because we have that sin that keeps us from him. But once Christ removes that that sin, that, that death from us, he becomes that channel through which the Spirit is, is poured into our lives. And that washing regenerates and renews us. Notice here it says that the Spirit is poured out richly upon us. The Spirit is not given with an eyedropper. The Spirit is given richly to us. And so when we are in a situation where we, we don't see the fruit of the Spirit, we say, God, I, I feel like I'm grieving the Spirit. I feel like I'm not living according to the Spirit. I'm not walking by the Spirit. We can ask God to give us the Spirit generously. I don't deserve any of it, God. I deserve not even the smallest drop of the Spirit, but God, be richly giving the Spirit to me so that I can walk in a manner that is worthy of the calling. It also here mentions 
that verse 7, we are justified by his grace. We are justified by the grace of God. And this links, I think, to the pouring of the Spirit upon us. So the justification is that we are declared righteous before God, the holy judge. We are guilty because of our sin, but God says we are not guilty because of the death of Christ on our behalf. Christ bore our guilt as he died on the cross so that God can say, you are now not guilty. And because of that justification, we can have the Spirit of God in us and poured out upon us, being justified by his grace. Now, we can theologically distinguish regeneration and the new birth from justification, where we're declared righteous before God, but that really is one great simultaneous work of the triune God. God the Father, Son, and Spirit works in us in that moment to regenerate us, to renew us, to forgive us, and to justify us in order that we might live holy lives and and be renewed day by day by the Spirit of God. So that is the salvation that God has given to us, the salvation from Father, Son, and Spirit working in us to make us more like Christ. And we can ask again, why? We talked about why before. What was God's motivation? But now there's another why question. What was God's purpose? What was God's purpose in saving us? Verse 7 says, so that we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Now that's not the only purpose, but it's one of the blessed ones that we have, that we are heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Now it says here we are heirs. That means we don't have the full inheritance yet, but we look forward to it. Something that we don't have in full, but we know that is coming to us. Romans 8, 16, 17 says this, The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, so that we may also be glorified with him. Now is that amazing that we are fellow heirs with Christ? What is Christ inherited from God the Father? All things. God has given the Son all things because of his faithfulness and his, his, his work on the cross, and we are joint heirs with Christ. We share in that adoption as sons through Jesus Christ all good things, this inheritance from God the Father. It says here in Titus 3.7 that we are heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Now hope in the biblical sense is not a wish. It's not, I hope the Seahawks win today. I don't know if they're going to win. Hope, in a biblical sense, is a settled confidence that God will do all that he has promised and it holds on tightly today to our future glory in heaven. That's what hope is. It's taking God's promises and holding on to them in the present. In Titus 2.13, you can look back a few verses, says that we are looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. That's the hope we have, this eternal glory, this blessed hope that's going to come when Christ comes back. He's not here right now in, in, in the flesh. He hasn't come back and set all things right. We're still in a hostile world. We're, we're still in a, a world that has the evil one throughout it. We can see him in so many ways. And yet, we look forward to that blessed hope when he comes back and will set up his kingdom and set all things right. That, and then we will finally receive all that was promised to us as heirs of God in Jesus Christ. And to bring this back to the the Trinitarian understanding of our salvation, remember what Paul says in Ephesians 1, 13 and 14, that the Holy Spirit of promise 
is given as a pledge of our inheritance. Like an engagement ring is a promise of a, a future event, of a wedding to come. The Holy Spirit is the Holy Spirit of promise, and it's given as a pledge of our inheritance. So the fact that we have the Holy Spirit in us, renewing us day by day, ensures that we will one day inherit God's kingdom. So if you have a, a doubt that you are going to inherit God's kingdom, remind yourself that the Spirit of God is in you, and as long as you have the Spirit of God in you, and if you're a Christian, you always have the Spirit of God in you, that's a promise that you will one day receive that inheritance from God the Father. Now, these are glorious truths about God's salvation, but Paul has one more reminder for Titus himself. He's to remind others in the church to be subject to the authorities, to remind themselves of who they were, to remind themselves of what God has done for them, how he saved them. But Titus also is to be reminded of his mission. Titus, remind yourself of this mission. Verse 8, this is a trustworthy statement, and concerning these things, I want you to speak confidently so that those who have believed God will be careful to engage in good deeds. These things are good and profitable for men. So Titus, you have a job to do. You have a big job to do. You have to travel throughout this this big island from church to church, from place to place, and find godly men who will be suitable elders for these churches to help build up this church. Teach these things. Speak confidently. Teach all the things I've given you in this little letter. Don't be shy, don't hold back, because it's God's purpose, and it will benefit the church and the world. If you do what you've been called to do, speak confidently, those who believe God will be careful to engage in good deeds. These things are profitable, good and profitable for men, for all men. So what is good and profitable for the world? Is it for the church to complain and shout and fight, to take to the streets and demand our rights? What is that going to be good and profitable for, for all men? It's if we are those who believe God and are careful to engage in good deeds. So for us as Christians, are you being careful to engage in good deeds? Are you responding to this world who's so hostile against you with a, a spirit of fear or of, of flight or of fight? Or are you thinking of ways to show good deeds to those who might be hostile against you? We can be grieved and righteously angered by those in, in government or other world, elsewhere in society. We can't speak out against evil. We're not just passive. We have an opportunity on Tuesday to, to vote, to bring in people we think will be better uh, in authority over us and, and throw out those we think aren't will not be good. Um, we can see uh, evil things and try to, to mitigate them, to undo them in, in some cases. But we cannot... Let that those efforts spill over into hatred and malice. And as I said before, we are not to fight the Lord's battles with the enemy's weapons. For those we might be tempted to despise, if they are not Christians, remember they are still enslaved by sin. And they don't need our contempt and condemnation, they need our compassion. If they see love, kindness, mercy, grace, and goodness from us, they're more likely to want to receive those from God as well. If somebody's resisting God and, and is, is evil in their life, and we go to them and we just we yell at them, we show contempt for them, and we we say bad things about them on Facebook or whatever it might be, is that going to bring them closer to Christ? No. But when we show them the love of Christ, the kindness of Christ, mercy, grace, and goodness from Christ, they're more likely to want to see that. Maybe they won't, 
There are times when we are kind to people who are unkind to us. They don't necessarily return the favor. But whatever we do, we must continue to show the love of Christ. There might even be those who are tempted to despise who are Christians. And we ought to show love to them as those who have been specially loved by God. How can we despise those whom God has received? If somebody is Christ's sheep, can I despise Christ's sheep? No, I I cannot do that. I must love them as Christ loved them. And beyond these considerations, how can we be hostile to others when we ourselves have been saved by God's grace alone and have the Holy Spirit within us, producing the fruit of the Spirit? Remember the fruit of the Spirit? Galatians 5, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Those are the fruit of the Spirit. If your response to the world is not the fruit of the Spirit, then you have some serious repenting to do. Remember, without God's grace, we would all be as lost as lost can be. And the fact that we can have these fruits of the Spirit is by God's grace alone. And so that truth should drive us to humility. We need to pray for those who are in authority over us. We need to pray for those who are lost in darkness. Pray for those who are persecuting us. Pray for those who hate us. And to be careful to engage in good deeds. As Paul says, to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good deed, to malign no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing every consideration for all men. Or we could borrow from Peter, 1 Peter 3, 8 and 9. He says this, to sum up, All of you be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, and humble in spirit, not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead. For you were called for the very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. Let's close in prayer. Father, these are sobering words, even as they're, they're blessed words. As we think about the salvation that comes from your hand, we also know that there are There's such sin in our past that we are without hope if we don't have Christ. We thank you for your salvation of us. If there are those here today who don't know Christ, may this be a day of salvation for them. May they repent even now as they hear your word. If they are relying at all on their good deeds to get to heaven, may they set those aside and repent of their wickedness and embrace Christ alone for salvation. If there are those, Father, in our lives that we are tempted to despise, whether they be political figures or or celebrities or even those in our own families or or friends, co-workers. Father, may we repent of that as well. May we find ways to love them, to engage in good deeds, to be prepared to love them with the love of Christ. We know that Christians can so easily set aside the fruit of the Spirit for the fruit of the flesh. May we not do that. May we willingly, gladly, seek the fruit of the Spirit in our lives and to be ready to express it to a a watching world that needs to see the love of Christ, that they might see Christ and fall at his feet and worship him and follow him. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.